0: Tonight on Arena, Tara rocked on everything you ever wanted to know about a career in singing but were afraid to ask, and we review a new production of a streetcar named Desire with Paul Meskell as Stanley. one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Your health is your wealth is a message that many of us are familiar with and it was never truer than for those whose whole career is based on physical performance, be that in the world of sports or indeed the arts. From Pavarotti to Pele, from René Fleming to Roger Federer, footballers, tennis players and singers all rely on their body and their muscles for their livelihood, as does uh, so Irish mezzo soprano Tara O'Rourke, who throughout her singing career has seen firsthand the importance of good vocal health. And now with her team of experts, she has created a weekend of professional development for classical singers, including health masterclasses, workshops and concerts and much else besides. And delighted to have you with us this evening, Tara. Um, you, you go to college... You learn how to use your voice. You spend years perfecting that at college. Obviously, you think I've got all my technique, or I've nearly got my technique sorted. Now, off I go out into the big bad world. Where does this? Where, how quickly do you find out that singing's only a tiny part of what you need to know about?
1: That's it. Good evening, Sean. Well, realistically, what we forget when we begin to study is that the instrument changes all the time and the muscles continue to grow right throughout the span of your career. So, of course, it's vitally important that anybody that decides to study full time and singing, that they focus purely on technique, mm. because without that, you have no foundation to build a house. However... Uh, using myself as an example because it's all I know about really. Um, I left my undergraduate studies in my third year because I was offered a job at the Bavarian State Opera in their opera studio. I was very lucky that the academy agreed to allow me to travel over and back and do my exams. Veronica Dunn travelled over and back to continue my singing lessons. So I was cared for in a Mm. technical way. However, when I moved to Germany and realised that there was so much Else, outside of just the singing and the performance. There was the whole business aspect of the career and what was expected from me is still ever-changing. But I think what I found over the last 15 years out there is that the more you treat yourself like a business, the easier it is to take the good days and deal Mm. much easier with the bad days. What was, you know, particularly in
0: that early period, aside from the fact that, you know, you were totally uprooted and moving Mm. to a different country and working in a different language for the most part Uh, certainly in your singing you were working in different languages but even the day-to-day stuff in rehearsals you were dealing in in a a different language what was the biggest thing really in those early years that you kind of thought I had no idea that this career was going to be like this whatever that thing
1: was well I suppose I mean for me the greatest shock was I always thought that I would sit in a practice room and decide you know sitting in Ravensdale, oh yes, I'd like to sing *Cenerentola*, Cinderella at the Met and that it would just magically happen and that's absolutely (laughs) ridiculous. What happens when you go away is that you are a product of a much, much bigger machine. And when you go into a rehearsal room, you have to bend and flex to the wishes of a conductor, the wishes of a director. You have to fit in with the other colleagues. You have to be incredibly flexible. And that's just in one rehearsal room. That's Mm. not even to bend and flex to the demands of the industry. The interesting thing in the last let's say two years and moving forward over the next three and four seasons is that because of COVID the industry is really changing and it's important that we are sharing that information with the singers that are coming up so they are prepared to be as flexible as we are now being forced to be. We used to and we still do we book three, four, five years in advance. However, it happens now that theatres will look at their marketing for the season and look at their box office and say, you know what, we took a hit with certain repertoire, so we're actually going to change some of those contracts. Which means that you have to be flexible enough to say, okay, I'll look at that repertoire and see if it suits me. Or you also have to be flexible enough when they say, we're taking that contract away, we now don't have the work for you, that you're able to learn something else new or redevelop your your niche or things you're interested in. Um It means being much more flexible with new music and that takes a huge amount of time to to study Um, and it's a big time commitment on top of a vocal commitment. So all of these things that I suppose are changing constantly within the industry and the reason I have brought this particular panel together is because they're working in the biggest theatres at the top level and they're going to be able to explain as easily, I suppose, and as honestly to these young singers, what will be expected? But of you're them. really
0: you're really pinpointing COVID as a major turning point oh, in yes. terms of how the, the the business of opera in particular and and singing, how how it actually works.
1: Without a question. So this season now, our seasons work academically from September through to the summer. This season now is the first season since COVID where I have contracts that I signed pre-COVID that are actually happening. Everything else in the last two and a half years changed. So even when I did work, it was maybe a different repertoire or with different colleagues or Mm. just different circumstances. Um, So you've had to be extremely flexible. Luckily for me, I have a great management team and a great team of support. I'm able to do that. But I think it's really important that we prepare these younger singers so that when they get out there, they have the tools to survive, first of all, and that it's not a shock to them, I have many colleagues who during the COVID decided not to return to the industry. And I find that very sad, but they just didn't feel flexible enough or that maybe they had the support behind them. So I just want to make sure that any of this knowledge I have is absolutely there for other people. I'm happy to share it. Yeah. But I felt it was really important to do it now
0: and i'll come to who the people the other people mm-hmm. who are involved in the in the weekend of master classes etc who they are and and what's involved there but just one thing to pick up on, on on the the covid aspect of things digital performances as in you know the thing is now being streamed or it's been recorded and subsequently streamed to people um, and a lot of that stuff came free and we were all saying, fine, during COVID, isn't it great? And the New York Met put up loads of archive sure. material, different opera houses around the, the world did the same type of thing. But of course, if you perform it live, it, you're paid to do it live, if that's available in perpetuity online, that's a kind of a small problem, isn't it? That's
1: it. I mean, I certainly suffered quite a bit during COVID because I, I mean... I hadn't realised before, but performance is my oxygen. And Dervla Collins and I, we did the first live streamed broadcast in Ireland during the COVID. We did Derva it live. The
0: pianist and she's involved in the in the she weekend is, of as course, well. an yeah. integral
1: part of my team always. But we did a live streamed recital from the concert hall in Dublin with no public and although I was desperate to sing and desperate to work it was incredible but also one of the saddest things I've ever done because I sing for the people I don't sing for myself I mean I can do that in the practice room but it wasn't until we were nearly finished I didn't know how to communicate with the cameras and I didn't know if anybody was feeling anything I work so much on the reaction that I get from the room and the feeling I get from the room and I mean that was industry-wide that was worldwide and we Mm. were happy that people needed art and they wanted art, we were happy to share it. The interesting thing that I have found, since the public have come back to the theatre, their wants and needs have also changed. Their reactions have changed because they have received art and received all of these performances through a Mm. screen. They're not as vulnerable as they were before. They're not as open yet with their involvement in our performances. So we all have to treat each other in a very kind way. But if you look at these group of young singers, recently graduated or Just graduating now, they missed years of public performance. And they missed all of that nurturing wonderfulness that the public can give them. Another reason why it's really important that we come together now to stand behind them, hold them up, give them every opportunity we can to know that we are back, the industry is back, and the public wants them.
0: You're talking about the the young singers who are part of the the workshops, and again, I'll come to those later on. But now I want to listen to a younger Uh singer. <laughs> younger singer, um, Tara Iraqs, of 2015. Uh, a younger singer who came into RTE and did a recording with guess who on piano? Oh, imagine. Derva <laughs> Collins was on the piano and she sang. Did this younger singer, Tara Iraqs? She sang a little bit of Rossini, isn't it? Uh, non pumesta, isn't it? Non pumesta. Yeah.
1: Cenerentola, Cinderella. Piume sta canto al fuoco, sta rosso la no.
0: I cannot believe Tara Rock that you're wincing and closing your eyes and giving out to yourself as you're oh. listening to that recording from 2015. That's uh, Tara Rock singing "Non Piumesta from uh, Rossini's "La Cenerentola" Cinderella, yeah. essentially. And it was Darrell Collins who was accompanying her there on the piano. But interesting, that was 2015. That recording was made for the John Murray Show, and so that was probably in the morning time that you were doing that. Quite no, early, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, quite early. But I was wondering. I asked you as you were listening to that 2015. You were due to open. Open in La in the New York Met just before COVID hit. That's right. It the morning, the morning of the opening. was cancelled, wasn't it?
1: It was. It was at lunchtime. I mean, I had already been in. I had left out my toy, toy, toys, my my good luck gifts yeah. to the other colleagues, and then all of a sudden, all of Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall, they made an agreement to to close because they had. Had um, information that the borders were going to be closed. So within 24 hours, it was pack up and get out as quick as possible, which was such a shock. You know, a contract that I had had for about six years in advance um, and we had rehearsed for two months. Mm. We were going to go into a run of 12 shows, which is a huge amount for an opera. Uh, To just pack up and go was wild, absolutely wild. At the time, I had no idea that every single yeah. contract for the following two years it was kinda of gonna go that way. It happened to be a bumper year of really exciting stuff with incredible <laughs> role debuts and house debuts. However, they will come back. Yeah. I I yeah you know
0: no, but the the other reason I wanted to play that piece was because I'm I guess this is part of what you'd be talking to the five is how many young we have singers? Eight. eight young singers, beg big mm-hmm. pardon. Eight young singers who will be taking these master classes, which can then be viewed by the public. Yes, the public can watch these master classes happening, and you'll be going across all sorts of genres and taking them through that side of things as well. But they will have to learn how to, in 2022, listen back to themselves. <laughs> you know, like I've just done to you. Here, here's your voice from seven years ago. Uh, it's and not you not know, very comfortable. I, how hard are you in yourself about that?
1: Well, you, I mean, you have to be, but I would be, even if it was only seven minutes ago, I'd be listening back thinking, mother of holy God, what was I thinking? It's really interesting. Again, because I was home quite a bit over COVID, mm. my accent came back to where it should be. Um, we speak very far back as Irish people um, and we speak quite low. Um, these are tiny you're, you're, you're things kind of
0: like, so the voice for singing has to be out on the front of your it
1: all has to be a little bit higher you know and, and if you're resonating away you <laughs> speak and a little bit higher yeah. but most of the time I speak where I speak um, so little things like that you know you'd notice straight away but I have to listen to myself um, not when I sing always after mm. so I record everything uh, the t- whole trick and the one thing we have to try and train every singer to do is not to listen to themselves but trust the sensation of the the bone structure of your face. Why is that? That's because when you go to a theatre that's 2,500 seats or 5,000 seats you have to be able to use your own microphone and not trust on the sound coming back to you but on the sensation within your body.
0: And I'm wondering about that too you know in terms of uh, we, uh, you often hear in terms of acting people will say look just rely on the text say the words the words will do all the work for you they have all the emotion in them say them get out of the way of them. Right. Is, is there something similar in terms of singing and music? Concentrate on making the sound as beautiful or in the right fashion, whatever's yes. been asked by the composer on mm-hmm. the page. Concentrate on that. All of the emotion will fall into place if you do that. You don't have to be feeling it per se.
1: I mean, it it all depends. The, the one thing I would say is that when somebody is lucky enough to have a really solid technical foundation, things should be simple. You know, we all learn to speak. We all learn to Mm. shout and to cry. All of that is the vocal cords. So singing shouldn't be particularly difficult. However, for your own vocal health and longevity of your career, you need to have really good placement and a good technical foundation. Again, I will say the muscles change, whether that's with hormones, with age, whatever with life sometimes they just change mm. so without that technical foundation you wouldn't have the physical support to support these tiny muscles as they change when you have that technical foundation you can absolutely relax into the music and just facilitate yes. it rather than you know over mince it
0: yeah but I'm, there's also the aspect in there that you're you're talking about listening to yourself seven minutes after <laughs> you've done something and, and criticizing yourself or, or being hard on yourself I'm sure there are lots of people out there who have lots of opinions <laughs> that they're only too keen to offer to you. Absolutely. Oh, and this, for a young singer, this you know, you're talking about critics, you're talking about maybe people you trust, you're talking about people that I, I don't want to talk about, you know, that there's, but people that you're maybe in competition with sure. in terms of you, you're competing mm-hmm. for the same parts, even though there might be buddies, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're getting all of these opinions thrown at you. Yes. That's a hard thing to have.
1: It is. And it's one of the things we're going to look at over the course of the weekend. So we have taken eight singers and what we're going to do, we've four people that I trust, four people that I have trusted for many years are going to work on the masterclasses. I am one of those people. <laughs> and I've only recently learned to trust myself. Derva Collins has been on my team since I did my Leaving Cert. And she, I suppose, is somebody who knows my instrument the longest and mm. its development, good, bad and very bad. And sometimes a little bit better.
0: And and, and good, good, very good and brilliant as well. <laughs> well she's been there Go for the other all direction of us. too God
1: bless her. Um, Angela Brower, who's another mezzo-soprano. She's incredible. She's from Utah, mm. Arizona. Angela and I, we started in the opera studio in the Bavarian State Opera on the same day. We sing almost all of the same repertoire. We are very lucky to have two good careers. And although we have on the big screen it looks like we've had the same career path our career paths have been very different we've sung in the same theatres but it took us much longer one of us to get there and maybe the other one a different way mm-hmm. and I think it's really interesting for people to hear how that worked for each of us because although we have had the same outcome our experiences have been very different and it's
0: not always about the destination sometimes it's not about the trip isn't and it? I think
1: it's really interesting and then we have Morgana Fauchot Prado Morgana is my French coach she <clears> is somebody I leaned on very heavily last season I was in Paris a lot last season Um, she's an incredible woman and I think what I would like to do with these eight singers is make sure that they can see how it is to work in the real world. They will get four different opinions on all the same repertoire um, and we will help them yeah. figure that out to take the good and take what works for them and leave aside to bring to their teacher or their coach what doesn't. Because oftentimes you can go into a room and a conductor might ask you something that you don't even understand. You have to surround yourself with a team that can help you work that out. So it could be that I'd be in Munich or Vienna or Paris or whatever and i call Dervla and say, uh he yeah. asked for this and I'm not even sure what he actually means and I'll send her the clip and she'll be able to discuss that with me
0: Translated into the type of thing that you will understand Absolutely. from her
1: Absolutely and I'd like for everybody that comes to the entire weekend yeah. to understand that we have to surround ourselves with a big and a great team but the most important thing is that we have people who are honest Yeah
0: and, and that you can trust the yes. audience. There are other people in there that Gabby Smith is a financial consultant, Jonathan Friend, an artistic advisor at New York Met, a senior arts manager and former casting director at the Bayerish Stats Opera, Andreas Maslow, who's your manager, yes. in fact, and RT Lyric event presenter, and Liz Nolan will be there uh, as part of the night as well. However, we've mentioned teachers a couple of times. <laughs> will we have a listen to her? We well, should listen course. to Perfection. Veronica Dunn. Why not? <laughs> how sad that she is no longer with us but so many singers that went through the the hands and the expertise of Veronica Grant at least of whom was yourself Tara Rock The minute you heard her, you started talking about the the quality of her voice, the the technique that she
1: had that she imparted to so many. Incredible. And without Ronnie, (coughs) there's absolutely no way I could have gone away as early as I did, as young as I did. Mm. But because she gave me the foundation, I was always able to come back to that technique each time the voice changed and just build on it. Um, and
0: I guess she would would have been a mentor and a teacher kind of throughout,
1: oh, <coughs> throughout your career. Yeah. She travelled after me <coughs> also. Mm. Um, and it was really important. I mean, we would discuss every role debut with her. She had quite a relationship with my management team as well to make sure that they were on the same page and that everything was been looked mm. after in a very healthy way manner.
0: Just on the subject of health, I know um, I skipped over it as well. Dr. Paul Quack who, from New York, who's part of the, the weekend as yes. well. Who is he and what will he be doing? This He's is incredible. I suppose this is vital to the whole thing as well. Ma-
1: this is huge. And, and <clears throat> one of the reasons I decided to do the whole thing, I met Paul because I got sick when I was singing at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And Paul is the resident ENT, the ear, nose and throat specialist to the Metropolitan in New York. Also, he is a huge, huge responsibility for Broadway theatre. So he deals with every sort of singer. However, the lifestyle is kind of the same. Um, and he speaks... It, oh, it's so interesting. It's so interesting. Whether it's really about the vocal health itself, whether it's about vocal longevity, whether it's about how to mind yourself, your mental health, your physical health, what you're eating... He is an absolute wealth of knowledge how to care for yourself when you're travelling in the weather changes time changes all these things that weaken your immune system he is just rivetingly interesting. And I guess
0: things that people take for granted you're at dinner at home and you're shouting across the (laughs) table at each other you know if you've got a big performance coming up the following week possibly you have to not shout. Well there's tiny detail (laughs) you have to lose that little (laughs) battle. Um, The the young singers let me just give their names because we might Mm -hmm. know them now but we'll possibly know them in a few years time. Anna Helena um uh, Mac- McLaughlin, Heather Salmon Sean Tester Maria Matthews Catherine Donnelly Deirdre Aratune, Deirdre Higgins and Owen Lucas all of them taking part in these masterclasses and there'll be a big gala performance then in St Peter's Church of Ireland I'll finish up uh, Tara Um, sadly you lost your dad in, in the last week
1: yeah yeah on the 9th
0: how important is that kind of support the family support and I suppose the support of the, the loved ones around you how vital is that to a
1: singer I mean, it's incredible. I am the singer. I am because I have the family I have. And my parents always said, I mean, no dream was too big, but if you're willing to do the work, you can have it. Um, <laughs> my poor parents, they've travelled far and wide anywhere I wanted to go. And this is already way back when I was maybe in the under 12s and the Fesh. And it might have been snowing and I was still insisting on going to Portadown down because that was where the <laughs> yeah, Fesh was on that night. And from then until now, They have been absolutely everywhere. They've never missed a role debut, a house debut, nothing. Um, Without them, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be where I am. The loss is obviously absolutely incredible. But in the Irish fashion, we had a huge wake and a breathtakingly huge funeral. And I met so many people that had such incredible respect and love for him uh, that even though it was the, without a question the saddest week of my life, it is p- probably also the proudest.
0: That's lovely. Joe, Joe, Joe rocked. And was yeah. music a big passion for him?
1: <laughs> I let him down there. Poor Joe was a little bit. <coughs> no, I mean, tone deaf is really is really harsh, but he was he enjoyed what we did. I can tell you, he did not like beginners' violin.
2: That was that was an issue for him.
1: Um, but he enjoyed very much that we could all sing. And he, I mean, I remember when he came to the Bavarian State Opera the first time, and he was thanking people around him for clapping. Joe, like, you oh, can't be doing that, you know. I mean, he he was. I, uh, he was a chef and, a, and an educator and he worked in DIT Cal Brewer Street more than 30 years. Um, I suppose our industries aren't that different. The hospitality industry to the music industry. Um, he was a man who felt education and further education was really important and even during his illness, God bless him, he was in the matter for, for five months. I went through in minuscule detail all of this stuff for the weekend and I feel he's a big part of that because yeah. he sat through it all with me. I think he'd be very proud that we're Motoring ahead.
0: Well, he wasn't tone deaf when he was listening to you, I bet you. <laughs> Uh, and so the music must have come from somewhere but clearly the educator came, there from, you go. came from Joe and obviously I'd say I echo this, uh, the, the thoughts of many when I offer myself sympathies these two Thank you, you very much and thank you so much for coming into us this evening in the midst of all of that The Celebrating The Voice is the name of the programme it will take place at St Peter's Church of Ireland in Drogheda from Thursday the 26th through until Sunday the 29th with that big um, gala night in St Peter's Church of Ireland on the Sunday evening that is isn't it the We have two
1: so on the Saturday night we're doing a big Celebration of song, and on the Sunday night is our opera gala. All right,
0: okay. Uh, you get full information uh, on how to get tickets to either the master classes or indeed the performances dot droghedaclassicalmusic.com. Formed in Sligo in 1989 Dervish have at this stage ascended to the level of traditional music royalty That status was underlined in 2019 when a host of Irish international and international stars joined them on their album The Great Irish Songbook featured the voices of Andrea Corr Vince Vince Gill Imelda May Rhiannon Giddens uh, Brendan Gleeson and many others Dervish will bring that album to the National Stadium on Thursday of next week that's January the 26th as part of Tradfest Temple Bar Before that they will be joining us on Arena next Monday evening. I'm really looking forward to broadcasting live from the Printworks in Dublin Castle to launch Tradfest. Aside from Dervish, we have a great lineup that includes Danny Lark and Louise Mulcahy, Mourad Wainey, the Word Up Collective, and many others as well. Limited number of tickets for that event, pre- priced at just five euro. Log on to the website. uh, tradfesttemplebar.com tradfesttemplebar.com you'll see a link where you can get those tickets if you're going to get one and you get one be sure to be there at half past six please we will be going live at 7pm look forward to seeing you there in the meantime a track from the current Dervish album The Great Irish Songbook this one featuring one of the Irish men of the moment it could be said Brendan Gleeson this is The Rocky oh no it's not The Rocky Road to Dublin this is The Whiskey in the Jar My fault entirely giving you whiskey in the jar. Oh, which in uh, jar, the jar there, which in fact features the steel drivers alongside Dervish. We might get a chance to play that Brendan Gleeson track before the end of the week. Maybe, maybe that's what I was at. But uh, the uh, the Great Irish Songbook Dervish will be with us next Monday, January the twenty third, at the Printworks in Dublin Castle. If you'd like tickets, limited number, as I said, of five euro. Go to the website Tradfest Temple Bar. Com. I don't want realism, I want magic says the tragic southern belle Blanche Dubois in Tennessee Williams Pulitzer Prize winning play A Streetcar Named Desire The play caused a sensation when it opened in 1947 with Marlon Brando as Stanley. Brando went on to star in the iconic 1951 film adaptation with Vivian Lee as Blanche. The work explores themes of domestic abuse what we would now call coercive control alcoholism and mental illness are in there as well but Williams also addresses the precarious position of women and how society views and treats the ageing female body. A revival of Streetcar has opened at London's Almeida Theatre and it holds the coveted status of hottest ticket in town thanks in no small part to our own Paul Meskill, who takes on the role of Stanley. Uh, this, this production is also directed by Rebecca Frecknell coming off the wild success of her multi-Olivia Award winning revival of Cabaret. The writer and novelist Emer McBride went to see A Streetcar Named Desire in the Almeida for Arena and delighted to have Emer join us now from London. Emer, before we talk about the specifics of this production, it is a play that is revived again and again and again. What makes it so, you know, current at many points in time
3: well I think it's it's an interesting one because you know it's it's long been my favorite play and I probably read it thirty years ago when I was a teenager first and I was shocked looking at the program note to realize that the the play is now in its 70 s and uh, and looking back over how often it is revived it's it's clear that it's kind of fallen into a sort of modern classic status and I think there's there's a number of reasons for that obviously there are themes inside it that uh, continually appeal that continually make us think and want us to return to. There are characters that are engaging and frightening and um, and charismatic. Um, but also, you know, in in the writing itself, there's a quality to the writing, a poetry to the writing that sets it outside of, you know, ordinary kind of uh, political pieces or or plays that are trying to make a, a point about something. It's it's it kind of elevates it, and I and I and I think you know Williams, in many ways, t- has taken on a status like Chekhov or or Ibsen even.
0: And I guess the, the, the statement of Blanche Dubois kind of holds in the case of the play. It's not exactly realism. There's a kind of a, there's something else going on above the, the ordinary story of an older sister coming back to her, her younger sister who's married to this fairly difficult piece of a man.
3: Yeah, exactly. It, I think if it was simply done as a piece of social realism, with telling the story about this kind of woman with mental illness and in her having to deal with her sister's brutish husband, I think it's it's something that would have been off its time and and probably would have disappeared and been superseded by other plays that were more modern. And um, and and I think it is to do with the writing. And it, it is Williams' examination of the human soul. You know, he he pits the the butterfly against the brute, and that is a theme. That you know revolves in mm. society eternally, and and the, and the fight between the, the love of, of of poetry and of beauty, and the love of of money and of power, um, and so it, it it elevates it beyond beyond yeah. the obvious themes.
0: Let's look at the specifics then of this production. Um, You're looking for problems. You don't get much worse than what they got here just before Christmas when they lost their intended Blanche Dubois. The character was to be played by Lydia Wilson. They lost her through injury.
3: Yes. Um, And I think that's, it was a great shame. She, you know, it would have been very, very interesting to see what she, what she did, but obviously um, they, they got Patsy Ferran to come in and take over the reins. And, and I have to say she does a really remarkable job. And uh, I imagine um, Rebecca Frecknell is very uh, delighted with what Mm. she's come up with. I think it's a, it's, it, it's a casting that's not without problems. She's very, very young, and that does detract from one of the major themes of the story. But she does deliver a very extraordinary performance, nonetheless.
0: Yeah, because obviously that that major theme being the, this older sister coming back and and the aging female body is a hugely important theme with within the play itself. How is it staged here in terms of? I mean, are, are we? It, it's in the round, I believe. Is the, is the first oh. important detail?
3: Sorry you just dropped out there for a second. I, I
0: was saying it, it's in the round we see it in the round where you're you're surrounding the performers rather than looking up at a stage.
3: Yeah, it's it's um, an, an unusual take for it because uh, normally it sits very comfortably inside a cross arch. But, uh, you know, I think uh, Rebecca Frecknell had decided she wanted to create this very, very physical performance, not only in the expected role of Stanley, but throughout the whole company. And I think, you know, detaching it from from all the safety zones and putting people all around and and. You know, necessarily when something's in around, there's there's a lot of movement, so that you know the the sight lines don't get clogged up, and uh, it really became a much more muscular production as a result. It was it was a really interesting take. I thought it was very successful. Actually, I was a bit doubtful at first, but mm. it really settled in, and they and they handled the problems of creating rooms and uh, and props, and you know they handled it very imaginatively, and it really. It did poeticise it, but it also energised it in a way that I've not seen before.
0: Yeah, and often I think in in a performance when it's in the round like that, you can feel as an audience member that you're kind of in the middle of it as much as anything else. You're not detached from it looking up. Do you become complicit in some of the more difficult aspects then as an audience member where we we have that brutish behaviour on the part of the Stanley Kowalski character?
3: I, I think certainly when when Stanley really takes off and and starts to lose it it becomes a lot more alarming when you're sitting a couple of rows down And mm. there was certainly a moment where a, a tin plate was smashed on the stage and then ricocheted off into the audience and everyone ducked um, but it sort of added to that anxiety that you felt that it wasn't just watching this violence being inflicted on the women on stage but you know as an audience member you felt almost at risk as a result, and and I think that was, you know, that was that was a, a very positive aspect of it. Actually, it didn't allow you to distance yourself from what was going on.
0: Yeah, and, and Paul Mescal, obviously playing Stanley in this production, um a, 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 an actor that I, in in many ways, would associate, and possibly because of the screen performance as much as anything else, that everybody knows from normal people, a real restraint, a kind of a a bubbling underneath, certainly, but it, it very seldom bubbles out. Of, of, flows out over the t- over the top but stanley demands both that menace underneath and bursts of temper and madness and brutality
3: yeah absolutely and obviously there's that iconic performance from um, marlon brando that no one can approach stanley without you know feeling in the shadow of and and every time you see it that that always remains there and and certainly paul mescal you know for instance, having seen him most recently in something like *After Sun*, where mm. you get this very understated, restrained performance, I was intrigued to see what he would do, and um, and actually he he really ran with it, and it was you know i was i will admit i was a bit cynical but when i when i sat there and i saw him do it i was very impressed he completely physically inhabited the character he absolutely um you know allowed that rage to flow through him and that unpredictability and you never for a moment felt that it wasn't organic or that there was you know kind of performance being put on that the actor was a bit uncomfortable about he absolutely committed to it and it really it was a very very alarming performance and and I thought kind of extraordinary actually
0: Yeah let's listen to a clip then um, from the the production Patsy Farron as you mentioned as Blanche and Paul Meskell as Stanley
2: Oh may I have a drag on your seat?
4: I have one for yourself
2: Why Thanks Looks like my trunk has exploded.
4: Uh, uh, me and Stella were helping you unpack.
2: Oh well, you certainly did a fast and thorough job uh, of it.
4: Looks like you raided some stylish shops in Paris.
2: Oh, clothes are my passion.
4: Um, what does it cost for a string of fur pieces like that?
2: Why, those were a tribute from an admirer of mine.
4: You <laughs> must have had a lot of admiration.
2: Oh, in my youth, I excited some admiration, but look at me now. Would you think it possible that I was once considered to be attractive?
4: Your looks are okay.
2: I was fishing for a compliment, Stanley.
4: I don't go in for that stuff.
2: What stuff?
4: Compliments to women about their looks. Yeah, I never met a woman that didn't know if she was good-looking or not without being told. And some, <laughs> they give themselves credit for more than they've got. See, I, I once went out with a doll who said, uh, "I am the glamorous type. I am the glamorous." Type. I said, so what?
2: And what did she say to that? She didn't
4: say nothing. That shut her up like a clam.
2: Did it end the romance? No, it
4: ended the conversation. That was all. See, some men are took in by this Hollywood glamour stuff, and some men are not.
2: I'm sure you belong to the second (laughs) category.
4: That's right. I
2: cannot imagine any witch of a woman casting a spell over you. That's right. You're simple. Straightforward, honest, a little bit on the primitive side, I should think. (laughs) To interest you, a woman would have to... um...
4: Lay... Her card's on the table.
0: Paul Meskel there as Stanley Kowalski and Patsy Farron as Blanche Dubois in the new production of Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire, which is at the Almeida Theatre in London. Uh, Eamon McBride has been to see it. As, as I was listening to that, Eamon, one thing I... I, I, kept, I have no idea of... What Paul Mescal looks like—it's very difficult to get the image of Marlon Brando in his white vest and the sweaty armpits and and the heat of of that we, that we get in the, in the film version, the nineteen fifty one film. It's very hard to get those visuals out of your mind. How does this particular production look?
3: Well, it's very stripped back, and you know necessarily because it is in the round, and so there's there's not uh, much set to speak of, um, and they they kind of rely on various tricks at different moments of you know sort of rain falling and and then there's a there's a lot of very kind of interesting ways of managing getting props on and off the stage but there is throughout it this intense feeling of heat and sweat and anxiety and you know the you know sitting in in kind of the the charming uh, Almeida Theatre in cold London. Um, <laughs> you 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 couldn't be further uh, away from the, the kind of the, the damp world of of New Orleans. But I think everyone in that audience really felt as though they had been sucked in there. There is you know tremendous quality and teamwork among the actors. Mm. I thought that was very impressive about creating that whole atmosphere.
0: Are we are we uh, noticeably in the nineteen fifties, or in the period of the play, or does it move around in that respect?
3: No, I mean I think it sits it sits within its period. It's it, the the clothes are within its period, but not terribly specific. You get the sense of when you are in time, but also there's no sense of it feeling like a period piece. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's there's no kind of Courtliness about it. It's it's very physical and visceral, and so there's there's nothing really to distract you uh, from the action on stage.
0: And and and, the streetcar name desire itself obviously Blanche and Stanley are at the very heart of it, but there are the peripheral characters, not least of whom is the the sister character and indeed Mitch, the other character who comes. uh, The the sister Stella, yes, Stella, (laughs) the famous line from from Kowalski, of course, shouting her name. Um, the Stella character and the Mitch character. How do how does that that aspect of the production fill out with the other players?
3: Um I think for me, and, and Jana Varson, who played um, Stella, was it's she began with there was a, quite a lot of eye rolling, and she was quite sort of annoyed and tired of her sister and her sister's uh, peculiar ways for a lot of it and I felt as though there was a nuance that that was missed Um, but she does finally get I mean the part is also a little bit like that Mm. Stella is kind of there to allow Blanche to be and to allow Stanley to be Um, but she did really come into her own at the end Um, but on the other hand uh, the actor playing Mitch Dwayne Wolcott was I have to say completely extraordinary and you know, it's it's a long time since I've seen such a subtle, beautiful performance. And, you know, there were scenes and, you know, he doesn't have a lot to do. Yeah. But what he did was so beautiful and so painful that this kind of intensely lonely man who wants to meet someone who's taking care of his dying mother, who he adores. And and just the, how... Outside of the male society that he mm. keeps, his personality is, and how he's he goes, you know, hangs out with Stanley and they play cards and they drink and they fight and they argue. But there's this very sensitive soul inside yeah. that only comes to the fore when he his vulnerability kind of engages with Blanche's. And and I and I and I thought the actor was I thought I thought Dwayne Wilcott was was quite yeah. extraordinary. And the the scene where. Uh, Blanche describes the the suicide of her uh, young husband you know the whole audience was just kind of aghast and this scene between the two of them and how tender and how Utterly painful it was was extraordinary. You know it was an absolutely crammed theatre, and you could have heard a pin drop.
0: Oh, that's a they, uh, good actor, so well measured. Yeah, a good actor is a good listener, so clearly he has those. He has those qualities. Uh, just to finish up, then, Imer, there there's some slow motion uh, choreography within it. How does that work? And how did it? I think that it affected the denouement of the play for you, did it?
3: Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm not a great fan of of slow motion when it happens in the theatre because I think it immediately knocks the audience into thinking, ooh, look at those actors, aren't they doing that slow motion really well? <laughs> in a way that, of course, when you're watching a film, it really is slow motion, so you don't think that. But when you see actors suddenly do it, on stage you can't help but think oh that one missed a bit or that was a bit you know mm. and it's distracting and there was there's a kind of a, a long section right at the end when they when they come to to take blanche away where they suddenly fell into slow motion and i felt it was distracting and in it, it took you emotionally away from what was happening which you know given that you as an audience member you go through so much with the characters you really invest with them, in them and and the produ- and this production particularly really forces you to engage with them and you really want to and that's part of the pleasure but to suddenly have this kind of technical trick come in uh, I felt was quite alienating and and so for me that didn't work um
0: the hard but that was that that that's a, it sounds as if it's a minor quibble i like, am, am I putting words in your A mouth? minor, Yes, yeah, I'm not putting words in your mouth. It's good. um <laughs> this is perhaps are they're all saying the hottest ticket in London. Does it deserve the status?
3: I think so. I think you'll wait a long time before you see something as engaging and as exciting and as thrilling as this. And, you know, it's it's great to see actors giving these performances in iconic roles, but also it's a great ensemble that's really just, you know, playing yeah. really tightly together, and that's always very exciting.
0: Yeah, which is very similar to what a lot of people said about Rebecca Frecknell's production of Cabaret, which was so good for Jesse Buckley. So let us hope that this does great things for Paul Meskill as well. Thanks so much for being with us this evening, Emer, and sharing your thoughts. Thank you. That's Emer McBride. Streetcar Named Desire starring Paul Mescal, is at the Almeida Theatre. It runs through until February the 4th. Rua Red, the art Centre in Tala, has been running a series of exhibitions over the past three years on the theme of Mary Magdalene, one of the most fascinating yet misunderstood characters in the Gospels. Rua Red's curator and director, Melissa Boyle, invited a number of artists to respond to the theme of Mary Magdalene. The series featured five artists, Amanda Coogan, Alice Marr, Rachel Fallon, Jesse Jones, and now the final in the series, a Mary Magdalene experience created by Grace Dias. I'm delighted to be joined in studio this evening by both Melissa Boyle and Grace Dyes. I was saying to you as we were coming to her there, Melissa, it, it was a fascinating project and we spoke to many of the artists that I that I listed off there. What was the fascination in this character, this biblical character for you?
5: I think she's always fascinated me even as a child. You know, I was I was brought up in, in Derry, as you can hear, in the seventies, um, within a Catholic family. And I was always interested in how women were represented within the Bible and and, in terms of, you know, we had the Virgin Mary. We had two main women, the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene. And she always appealed to me because she felt very real, she felt human, she, she had emotion, she, she wept, she sweated, she bled, whereas, you know, the other, mm. her polar opposite was very, very different and I suppose I could relate more to Mary Magdalene.
0: And when you went about choosing the artists that you were going to get to, to do these various explorations in and around the theme and the character of Mary Magdalene, what, was the, what were the criteria that you were using? choose those artists?
5: Um, I I suppose it was artists that I knew would make really challenging work in response to the theme and because Rio Red is a multidisciplinary arts space I wanted to work within all of the art forms so I chose artists that I I knew would make great work but throughout you know theatre, dance and visual art, installation and movement um, I'd worked with some of them before. I'd worked with Amanda before. And Amanda Coogan, yeah. Yeah, I'd come in contact with Grace and we'd spoken about previous work. So I knew that they would take the theme and bring it in their own direction, I suppose, that it was a jumping off point.
0: And when you when it came to, to making it for from your point of view then, Grace, specifically, I suppose we know you best as a maker of theatre. Um, Did you look at the previous artists and how they had explored the work and kind of try to build on that? Or how did you approach this character of Mary Magdalene?
6: Well, it was kind of an amazing, enriching experience for me as an artist, because when I was approached, I was making work predominantly in theatre. But then I was sort of transitioning into film at the time as well. So over the course of making the work I kind of got to explore all those different things and we would have all been brought together at the beginning mm. to talk about the work and Melissa would have given us specific kind of research documents and stuff and we had people come in and do amazing talks with us and um, kind of workshops and stuff so we were all developing the ideas at the same time
0: Almost together in like, some ways like, yeah, yeah,
6: like a little kind of amazing art coven of <laughs> amazing women and then the best thing ever well not, you know, for the whole world but but COVID kind of meant that we were stretched out. So the, all the work was meant to take place in 2019. And then we had an extra two years yeah. of kind of waiting, not knowing when we were doing it. But we'd have these weekly Zoom coven Ah, All
0: right, so there was that—that allowed for a kind of development of ideas, I suppose, in a way that you wouldn't have had. I suppose it's a nil wind that blows that blows no good. But But
6: what I—oh, sorry. Go
0: ahead. Grace mentioned there this idea of the various workshops and lectures that there were. There was a group of academics that came in uh, to speak about different aspects of Mary Magdalene. What was the most fascinating thing that came out of that for you, Melissa? There was
5: so many. I suppose, um, yeah, we had Marina Warner. You know, Marina Warner was a starting point for me, and and. 2014. Well, actually, whenever I was a college in NCD, I studied here and um, one of my tutors presented me with her book, The Myth and Cult of the Virgin Mary, and that kind of started off my own process mm-hmm. in terms of making work around um, Mary the Virgin, Mary Allardry and Mary Magdalene. Um, and I got an opportunity to meet with Marina in 2014. And at that time, I had this idea about the Moutland series. And I said, dear Marina, what do you think about this? And she was like, go for it. You know, we can co-create it or we can work together on it. So whenever COVID came, it, it kind of made things possible, as mm. Grace said, you know. And I invited Marina to come and speak um, to all of the artists to deliver a lecture mm. on her most recent book, which she did, which was just fantastic. Um, we, we also had Megan Kelly, who was a feminist cartographer. We had Megan Watterson who really impacted Grace's work in mm. particular um, and she wrote a book called Mary Magdalene Revealed and we had Catherine O'Donnell from um, Magdalene's For Justice campaign as well. Mm. So
0: I think maybe you were going to go ahead and say how amazing was that what you were going to say Grace <laughs> was it Mary Magdalene Revealed was, was that a big moment in terms of how, where you went with your piece a Mary Magdalene experience?
6: Well, I think, I I suppose, thinking about, you know, looking at all the other artists' work and stuff and all of us kind of talking about what we were going to be doing and meeting these amazing um women who were giving us guidance in different ways. I really wanted to tackle kind of trying to show her as a character, so trying to write her, write her mm. as a character in modern life. So, so what would she look like if she was walking around Tala in 2022 um, was kind of my thinking.
0: And she kind of becomes this character Tina Malone. Yeah, uh, well so Tina
6: Malone tries to become her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I suppose she's manifested kind of, but in yeah, that yeah, way, yeah, to yeah. Us through the, the character played by Jordan Jones. Yeah. Explain Tina's scenario and her involvement with John Brophy.
6: <laughs> so Tina has been asked by John Brophy, who's a TD and a kind of a fictional community activist. Fictional TD we should listen to Yeah, ask. he's fictional. Um, he's a kind of community activist and he's asked her to come to a hotel room and perform a Mary Magdalene experience. Um, So she interprets that in loads of different ways. So she gets nice costumes, she looks it up online. She basically had the same process as we were all having, you know, Googling Mary Magdalene and trying to figure out what to make art about her. Um, And yeah, so she reads out bits of Mary Magdalene's gospel which she finds and that shows her a different way into the character and obviously John wants her to play her as like a fallen woman that he Mm -hmm. has to save but the kind of conflict between them is she won't play the part that way anymore and I think it's really interesting because up until now like men have always painted the picture of Mary Magdalene so we were all engaged for over three years in women trying to show who she was or who she could be or what her message was
0: and it's interesting that the John Brophy character has, and this is a new word, he's been Me Too'd. Yes, <laughs> so, on the effing internet. <laughs> on the effing internet, to use his words, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, you, tell me if what you wanted, you were looking at this, I suppose, the whole idea of social media mm. and of of the, the, act, uh, the activism of Me Too mm. and how it has been uh, responded to. Mm-hmm. I suppose that was part of what you were looking at there.
6: Totally, and I think the big thing, I suppose, I want people to take away from it, they see it, is like, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about you know, cancel culture, Me Too, crucifixion, is it awful for these people who Mm. are being held to account? Mm. But realistically, like, and it comes up in the film, like, there is a little bit of get down off the cross, we need the wood, you know, because (laughs) really, (laughs) if you go through even the biggest, most famous Me Too people over the last five years, not really that much has happened to them. Mm. Whereas the women who come forward are often the ones who are the sacrificial lamb, who are often the ones who are left you know in shreds afterwards so the film kind of touches on on those kind of pieces Yeah, and
0: I just wanted to ask one final question I'm going a little bit over time now, but yeah. that idea of the crucifixion is in there almost as an art exhibit in and of itself Yeah. so maybe explain a little bit around that idea which I thought was so hi- interesting Within it's a film work we should say yeah
6: yeah it's a film installation so um, an artist asks well I suppose it comes from the thought that like I had loads of ideas for what this could be and Melissa had to listen to them all over, <laughs> over the three years and one of them was the thought of like what if you just put someone who had been Me Too'd up on a cross in a gallery and let people come in and look at them you know so that happens in the film in the fictional world of the film yeah. an artist does do that and you get to see that play out and what actually happens yeah and, yeah. and,
0: and very interesting stuff it is indeed who's your next character
5: who's our next character. Well, sadly it's (laughs) it's the end of the Magdalene series. So um,
0: yeah, we have a new
5: programme. We have a new programme starting in the summer and a few bits to catch up on in between.
0: Now listen, thanks to both of you, Melissa Boyle and Grace Des for coming into us this evening. And the Mary Magdalene Experience, it can be seen at Real Red, it's running all the time. Yeah, we might
6: just say quickly and now you're in that time, we're gonna have a closing event on the second of February. Um, with Emma Kirwin who's written a response piece Um, and so if people want to come along to that it'll be a nice kind of Bealtaine or not Bealtaine Imbolc way to 2nd of February uh, uh, 2nd of February at at 6pm in rural. Red Okay,
0: all happening at Rural Red Arts Centre apologies for going over a bit on that Uh, Liam Murphy Amanda Passa-Divine researched uh, Michelle Gibson Broadcast Coordinator Tommy O'Sullivan and sound programme produced by Sinead Egan talk to you tomorrow night at 7 apologies to Fake No Brain who'll be with you after the news